0: Amen and amen. Well, we are on actually part two of the series we started last week. Of course, last week, last Sunday night, we had a special service at Newbridge Bridge and uh, celebrated our upcoming merge, which is just going to be awesome. I'll tell you what, after that meeting last week, I told uh, Jeff and Dustin and Gabe, I said, I don't know if we're going to be able to hang on till April 22nd. I know well, we're about ready now, aren't we? But uh, anyway, tonight we'll be, we'll be working now through the book of Ephesians, which we're going to take the next several months, and we're going to go through the book of Ephesians. And uh, the, uh, the message from last week will be online this week. And so if you want to get caught up, you can listen to that. And then tonight we're just going to take a portion of chapter 1. We're going to go from verse 3 to verse 14. Now, what I established last week, I'll give a little bit of a, a recap. We talked about how the book of Ephesians is it's the Apostle Paul's kind of crowning theological uh, letter. Uh, Most uh, scholars, they look at the book of Ephesians and they say in six chapters, the Apostle Paul gives us basically the richest truths of his teaching, and it basically summarizes everything else that he wrote in the New Testament. And so what we have in Ephesians, some call it the crown of Pauline theology, if you want to Get a theological term. It's the crown of Paul's theology. And so what we'll do tonight is this: we'll work through basically what is understood as the the introduction to the book, the the tone-setting passages of the book, which is verse 3 to 14. Now I say this in A, that the book of Ephesians, it's intentionally laid out in a way. It's, it's addressed to a multicultural young church, and it's laid out in a way to help that church come to a fullness of love and to maintain unity in the midst of a climate of intense spiritual warfare. And so let me just give you the backdrop. So Ephesus, uh, it was home to one of the ancient wonders of the world known as the Temple of Diana. And that was a major uh, demonic you know, idolatrous cult. And uh, people from all over Asia Minor would come there and they would, they would worship and pay homage to Diana. And so uh, it, they had this massive demonic influence with that. And then they also had something known as the imperial cult where people actually worshipped Caesar. And so to live in Ephesus, you had to give homage to one of these two opposing sort of demonic idols And to be a Christian meant that you couldn't connect to either one of those. And here was the capper. Those things were heavily connected to the economic system of the entire region. And so if you said no to the demonic influences and yes to Jesus, you were in a position of warfare to just even be able to live. And so Paul is writing to this church that's had massive revival. Many, many souls had come to to the Lord and he's trying to instruct them how they can walk in a fullness of love and stand firm in the face of intense spiritual pressure. Now at the same time, this church is full of Gentile and Jewish believers, which in first the first century was completely politically incorrect. There were just no places where Jews and Gentiles mixed except for in the body of Christ. And so Paul's addressing their need for unity, helping them to to stand firm in love and and that they would walk in unity, and he's helping them to stand firm in the face of intense demonic oppression. And as I was thinking about this last week, I was like, man, I just am burning to preach on the book of Ephesians, but I couldn't connect why that mattered to us, except for that it's the Bible. I mean, the Bible matters, amen. Amen. But I wanted something a little more practical, like, how does this work for us? And I just, I was just thinking, Ephesians, so good, so revelatory, now, I need, I need some traction for us here at the House of Prayer, and then I'm like, you know, as I am, I'm a little dull sometimes, I had to just sort of step back and think about it, and I went, oh, right. What are we doing in 2018? Well, we're going to have to walk in love so that we can walk out unity, amen, So that by the fall, we can stand against the demonic influences of racism over our city. So this book is teeing us up. It's getting us ready to engage in a way that is going to enable us to be successful in the things God's called us to do this year. And so I was like, why am I burning for this? And the Lord goes, I've got a little something for you this year, and I need your hearts to be equipped with it. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at this introduction, let's work through this. So we're going to talk, like I said, about, uh, from verse 3 to 14 tonight, and uh, like I said, that's the tone-setting passage of the entire book. Now here's something interesting. Verse 3 to 14, in the original language, in Greek, is actually one sentence with over 200 words. It's like the Apostle Paul, he's just got so much in his heart. And as he begins to write, he goes, I've just got to tell you about the riches of the glory of God. I've got to tell you about your inheritance. I've got to tell you about the fact that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign. God's going to put everything up under Jesus. Oh, and you and I, we've been adopting according to the riches of his grace and his great pleasure towards us. Ah, oh, that's amazing. He just runs on and on and on and on. And that's what you get in those, in those verses. One long sentence that covers... I mean, some of the richest themes in the entire Bible. And I kind of lay a few of them out there, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but he talks about our chosenness in Christ. You know, I, 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 and, I, and we, we use chosen or elect, and then we talk about adoption. Uh, and three, I say, he talks about the truth of our adoption and our acceptance in Jesus. And, and I think there's something so special about knowing that you've been chosen by God. You know, when you go to the store, do you pick the stuff you don't want? You're like, man, I really hate broccoli. Give me a whole pound of it. No. You, cho- you choose what you love. And the Bible is very, very clear. We're chosen by the Lord. We, we are picked by Him. If you've ever been overlooked, if you've ever been left out, If if you've ever wished, man, I wish I would have gotten picked for you. If you're the last guy that got picked on the sports team, glory to God. Or sometimes you didn't make the cut. I remember when I was in high school and I played baseball, and man, I didn't make the cut one year. I was like, how did I not make the cut? Well, Here's the thing. In Jesus, you always make the cut because he picked you. Come on. You don't ever have to feel like you're out. You don't ever have to feel like you're left out or, 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 or overlooked. You're chosen in him. Uh, the second thing in these passages, man, he gives us this real rich expression of God's motivation, the heart of God's love and his affections towards us. And I would just say this, the most I've said this so many times, but you, I just can't say it enough. The most transformative revelation I've ever had is the revelation of God's love for me. Not just saying it, and yeah, we all know Jesus loves us, this I know the fourth the Bible tells us. I'm talking about the revelation of God's love that goes down into your heart and changes the way you think and changes the way you feel. It changes your perspective on life and your perspective on others. And when you understand that the great God of all the ages, the one who is infinite in every facet of his being, is motivated by love and is absolutely head over heels in love with you, it changes things. There is a confidence that happens and takes place in your soul. There's a settling that happens down on the inside of you. I remember several years ago, I was sitting with a pastor, a large church, and he's a pastor from Alabama. And we're sitting there in my office, and he's looking at me, and he just goes, man, you just seem so calm so settled in your heart he goes what's going on with you and I go I don't know no I, I just I feel good I don't I mean I don't feel like so settled I feel kind of passionate and aggressive he goes you just man there's something about you he goes what do you what do you attribute that to that your soul seems so settled and I hadn't thought about it and I just I just sat there for a minute I go well I guess I just really believe God loves me. And like, like he likes me. He likes me and he loves me. I just believe that. And it just settles my heart in a, in a way that there's just confidence in there. There's just contentment in there. The other night, my, uh, my daughter, I, I came home from the night watch. Yes, I'm still on the night watch. Glory to God. I just feel the Lord calling many of you to the night watch right now. But I'm still on the night watch, still leaving the night watch. And, and the other night, I came home, and it's about 4.30 or 5 in the morning, and I hear my daughter, she's up there coughing. She, got a little, she had a little coughs. Man, I, I think we're, right now, we're all going to catch a healing in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Based on, what did you just tell me, Jeff? 300 people were admitted to the Gwinnett County Hospital this weekend, and all 300 had the flu. We bind the botch of Egypt in the name of Jesus. All right. So anyway, she's up there, and she, I can hear in her bedroom, and uh, she coughs. She does the, and she woke herself up coughing. And then she does the, the whimper to try to, like, get a parent's attention. <laughs> 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 so I run upstairs as fast as I can. I get in there, and I'm like, hey, babe, you okay? She goes, oh, i sick. And she was coming over. She was just getting over it. And then she got that second wind sometimes of the cold that comes back. She goes, I wanted to feel better, and I don't feel better. I said, baby, what can I get? Let me get you some water. You're going to be fine. Let me just pray for you. I'll just put you back. You're going to be great. I'm going to put you back to sleep right now. And I prayed for her, gave her some water, put her back. And uh, you know, I, I'm like, good. Okay, just go to sleep. You'll, be, you'll feel so much better in the morning. And then I go back downstairs, and, I, and you know, a few more minutes, and... <laughs> I go run upstairs because I don't want my wife to wake up at 4.30 in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning. So I'm running. oh, babe, babe, you okay? I just don't feel it. I go, babe, I, you, I got this. I, I'm here. I love you. And I gave her some water and prayed for her again. I said, okay, all right, now, I need you to be quiet this time because I don't want to make mom up, okay? She goes, okay. And I go back downstairs a few more minutes. <laughs> and she's just blowing up. And uh, I went in there, and, and, and she'd, by that time, she'd already gotten my wife. Like, she'd snuck out of the room, coughed in the hallway, and then she was in the bedroom before I could head her all. And, you know, my wife didn't do anything different than me. She just hugged her up a little bit, prayed for her, told her she'd be okay. And you know when she put her back to bed, she was just calm and fine? What was going on there? She wanted her mama. She wanted her mom. Well, you know, in a husband and wife and a mom and a dad is the nature of God. And one of us carries a little bit more of the nurturing side of the father, a little bit more of the caretaking side of the father, and she was reaching out for that in my wife. And as soon as she felt that sense of love and comfort and care, everything settled down for her. And, beloved, that's how it is for you and I. When we truly sense the love of God, I'm not talking about Knowing that, on a, you know, you can write it down as an answer on a test. God loves me. Yes, I know this. No, I'm talking about you know it in here. That it's impacting your emotions. It's impacting your perspective. When that happens, something settles on the inside. Paul goes deeply into that in these passages. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, the truth of our adoption, our acceptance in Jesus. The depth of our redemption and our inheritance. He says all of this in those first you know, chapter, uh, verse 3 through 14. And then he, he goes and he just goes, he just goes big, he goes, let me just also expound on the mystery of the will of God for all the ages. Like, he just goes epic in these passages. And so, this thing is laid out in a, in a real interesting way. It starts with, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And and what that is, is actually uh, the whatever theological term would be, a doxology. What does that mean? It's a hymn of praise. All you songwriters in the room, let let me just propose something to you. Paul wrote these verses with the idea that it could be sung. You want some rich content to write some songs off of? Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Get it and write some songs. And what it is, it's interesting the way he packaged it because he does this this blessed be God, and then he gives it to us in three sections. He goes, blessed be the Father, and he does that for a few verses, and he goes, and blessed be the Son, and he does that for a few verses, and he goes, blessed be the Spirit. He actually gives us this Trinitarian blessing, where we're we're blessing and praising God for the goodness of who he is, for the truths of his nature, kind of like what we were singing a little bit ago. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, so this is what Paul's laying out here. So here's how we're going to look at it. We'll start with the blessed be the Father, then we'll move to the blessed be the Son, then we'll move to the blessed be the Spirit. Sound good? All right. Roman numeral 2. Let's go ahead and read verse 3 through 6. And here's what I've done for you. The term in him is used constantly through Ephesians, and especially in chapter 1. And, and, uh, and so what we have is this, this personal pronoun him, but it's hard sometimes to know exactly which hymn is he referring to. Is he referring to him, the Father, him, the Son, him, the Holy Spirit, which one? So what did I do for you? I went ahead and put it in parentheses, which hymn Paul is talking about. Just so you understanding, so when you read it later, you can kind of get your mind around it. All right, here we go. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Hallelujah. All right, let's take a look at it. Letter A. The Father blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Say spiritual blessing blessing. in the heavenly places. Have you ever looked at that and wondered, well, what does that mean? What are spiritual blessings in heavenly places? How do I even get a spiritual blessing in a heavenly place? How do I even get a hold of that? What is that exactly? I've heard teaching on this in, in the past. And one thing I can definitely tell you that spiritual blessings in heavenly places are not is they are not temporal uh, blessings in uh, earthly places. <laughs> They're spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But I've actually heard preachers take this passage And what they'll do is they'll reduce it down to, yeah, in Christ, you're blessed because you get to prosper, or you're blessed because, you know, you're going to be protected all the time. And, And they take these spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and they make them completely natural, and they completely reinterpret the verse around temporal things that you'll get now. So here's the thing. Paul is not trying to make a shoot in the dark and figure it out. He's not trying to throw language at us that we don't know what he's talking about. What Paul does, as is the case often in the Bible, is he says something and then he interprets what he says immediately right after it. So the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are the entire package of our redemption that Paul is about to enumerate right after this. And if you read through those next verses you'll read things in there that are clear about what these spiritual blessings are, like the fact that we were chosen, like the fact that God predestined us to be adopted, like like the fact that God wants us before him in love. There's all sorts of spiritual blessings that he actually lays out, like the fact that we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus, that we've got forgiveness of sins, that he's lavished his grace on us in all wisdom. These are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now, do they have an impact upon us now? Absolutely. They change how we live right here and right now. They reorder us. They completely shift our, our, our natural experience. But to reduce these to some sort of temporal blessing in an earthly place is so far beneath what the passage is actually even talking about. The fact that you've been chosen by God, that is, I mean, immeasurably greater than some sort of, and you're going to get a new car. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, these, the language is towering, beloved. When I look at this language, I just got to tell you, just let me be human for a minute. I mean, I am, but anyway, <laughs> let me just be honest. When I look at this language and I look at the truths in these passages and I go, I've got to teach this stuff. This is so far above me. This is so, gr- these thoughts are so much higher than us. These truths are so grand and so great. They're towering truths of the scripture. When I look at this th- these thoughts, I could never do these justice. If I, could, if I could just get a little anointing on me to just even scratch the surface a little bit about the depths of these terms, it will cause all of our hearts to explode. You've been blessed with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, not the least of which is this, God picked you. He chose you. He selected you. And that's what he says right there. In verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That phrase, before the foundation of the world, it's used interchangeably in the New Testament. The other phrase that's used is, before time began. God picked you when. You could have gotten saved last week, but I want to tell you something. God picked you a long, long time ago. He picked you Before time began. I want you to think this through for a minute. I don't know if you've ever done this math. Before there was such a thing. As tick-tock, tick-tock. And I don't know what an existence is. Without tick-tock, tick-tock. But there was that. Before there was time. There was God. And God... He existed in perfection, in beauty, complete contentment within himself. The Godhead fully in love and fully in joy. Proverbs 8 tells us that that the Godhead was delighting within itself. And in that place of perfection, before there was even time, the Bible says according to his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? It's when God says to himself, It says, the good pleasure of his will. He says, what do I want? What is my will? And what will please me? That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) And before time began, God looks within himself and he says, what will please me? What do I want? What is my will? And in that moment, God actualized you. And he actualized you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. And he thought of us before he made time. See, some of you have lived your whole life, and your parents said, you were an accident. We didn't plan on you. Or some of you don't even know who your dad was. And you felt like, man, I... I shouldn't have even been. I don't even count. And I would tell you, that is a lie. Because it doesn't matter if your parents chose you or not. God chose you before your parents even breathed. And before their parents even breathed. And before their parents even breathed. And before Adam even breathed. And before he even said, let there be light. and Before he even said, let there be time. He said, let there be, fill in your name. Because he looked inside himself to what would please him the most. And you were actualized in the eternal heart of God. And so then God had to do some crazy stuff. He had to make tick-tock Tick talk, He had to make time. Why? Because he had to make a creation. And in that creation, he had to make light. And then what he have to do? He had to make a universe. And in that universe, he had to make galaxies. And in those galaxies, he had to make solar systems. And in those solar systems, he had to make our solar system with our sun, with our planet. And he had to make an ecosystem that wrapped our planet that would sustain life. Why? Because he needed to put Adam on it. Why? Because in many generations after Adam, he wanted to get you. That's what he wanted. He wanted you. Before time began, He chose you. Listen, that's way better than getting picked for the kickball team. Spiritual blessings. Heavenly places. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He says that we should be holy. Somebody goes, see, I knew it right there. That's it. God doesn't want me to have fun. He wants me to be whole. He wants to put a straight jacket on me. I knew it. God chose me to be a robot. I was thinking. I preached. I was preaching this earlier today, and I said that I remembered. I got to tell you this. I remembered years ago. I was watching uh, Christian television. There's some weird stuff on Christian television. <laughs> and I was watching this guy, and this guy was preaching. And he had this big sign in lights right there at the pulpit. I can't remember if it's behind it or in front, but right there at the pulpit, this giant sign. It said, God's robots. I thought, that's wrong. That is real wrong. God didn't choose you to make you a robot. He chose you that you would be you and that you would be able to interface with him in intimacy. Holiness is not about God putting a straitjacket on you. It's about Him setting you free. See, we've got this thing flipped upside down. Sin is bondage. Deception and lies are bondage. Holiness is freedom and beauty and pleasure and glory. And so here's what God does. He takes us, chooses us, draws us to himself, and he introduces us to his son. We get born again. And in that relationship, he takes of his own nature, his own beauty, his own majesty, his own glory, and he puts it on us. He clothes us with righteousness. See, holiness imparted to us where we walk it out day in and day out That's called righteousness. And what the devil has done a great job in deceiving the nations to believe is that somehow sin is more freedom than holiness. But sin binds you and blinds you. And holiness sets you free. You finally get to be free to be who you were created to be. You finally get to be loosed of every chain, every hang-up, all the issues in your soul. Holiness is beauty upon you. It's God's nature imparted to you. So says that we would be holy, then he goes, without blame. Without blame. See, this is probably the thing that impacts people's prayer life more than anything. People don't pray, or they don't pray long, or they don't pray intimately, primarily for one reason, they're, sh- they're full of shame. I'm convinced that one of the greatest problems with the church today is that we live under the weight of shame and condemnation to an extent that we can barely even look at God Some of it's because we have recurring sin issues, but some of it's because we don't have a clue what redemption is really about. We don't understand what forgiveness and justification and sanctification even does. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But here's the point. He goes, I wanted you to be beautified, to be clothed with my nature, clothed with righteousness so that when you can be with me, you're blameless. You don't feel that weight of condemnation. You don't feel like I can't look at you. You don't feel like Peter when he said, go away from me. I can't handle you. See, most of us are offended with the mercy of God. We don't understand a God who could forgive people as wretched as us. We just don't get it. And we just do the math like this. If anybody had done me wrong the way I've done done you wrong, there's just no way. I'm just done. I am done. And God goes, I'm not done. Because my mercies are new every morning. He goes, I've got a motive. And my motive is love. And I've got a desire. And my desire is you. And before time began, I picked you. So I could beautify you, so you could be before me, blameless, without any sense of shame, without any sense of blame on your soul. That's called justified. See, we get forgiveness a little bit, like we get it like, okay, if I forgive you, it means I'm not mad at you for the thing you just did. So we go, okay, I forgive you. And we go, oh, good, you're not mad at me? No, no, I'm not mad at you. Now, but what we have a real problem with is the next part of, of what justification actually is. Because we'll do this. We'll go, oh, I forgave him, but I don't forget. Mm-mm. Fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me twice. However that goes, whatever. How's it go? Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Right. So we go, no, no, no. I forgave him, but I don't forget. God goes, well, that's not how I do. I justified you. I forgave you, I cleansed you, and I impart innocence to you. So now when I look at you, I look at you as innocent. That's called justified. So that when you come to pray, when you stand before God, you don't have to go through the list every single time. The cleansing of the blood of Jesus sets you before him innocent. That's called blameless. Everybody say blameless. Blameless. I love this. That we should be holy without blame. And this is the thing. Before him in love. This is the motivation of the heart of God. You know, uh, some people feel like God He just wants servants. He just wants you to serve him. Just go and do his bidding. Just run around out there doing everything that God wants you to do. But but you feel kind of like God's like, okay, here's the orders. Now just go do it. Just get out of my presence and go do it. But the Bible is clear that he saved us. He, He chose us before the foundation of the world that we be holy and without blame. Where? Before him. See, the father actually wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. And herein is really where the issue of intimacy, where the rubber meets the road, because some people are willing and they're content to live their whole life with God at a distance. They want to live with God at an arm's length. You know, they they, they want to do the Christian thing, but man, just to have God all up in my business like this? And God goes, I didn't save you so you'd be a stranger. I didn't send my son to die on the cross to purchase a bunch of slaves and servants and robots. I did that because I want you. And some of us can't even rest in that truth because then we go, you want me? Well, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And, And he goes, no, you've missed it. I don't want you to do, I want you. Some of us, that hurdle is so big, we can't even rest in the fact that God just wants us before him without blame. Again, think about my daughter, my little seven-year-old daughter. She always, I mean, like her favorite thing is to get in a kiss fight with me, a kiss fight. Yeah, it is what you think it is. We kiss each other and somebody wins. And she will hop on my lap. She'll go, kiss, bye. And we'd just, we'd just wrestle it out, just kissing each other down. It would be the weirdest thing if my daughter jumped on my lap, kiss, bye. And then in the middle of it, stop. and goes, now what do you want me to do for you? I go, like, what? Clearly, you don't want to just, like, you know, have fun with me. You want to... You you want me to do something for you? What do you, do? what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I'd be like, "Whoa, come on!" I mean, I'd be like, "What is that?" I just want to enjoy you. I'm not trying. To, what are you talking about? You want me to do something? I don't know it. I know it. I like. Wow. Wait. But that's how so many of us do God. As soon as we start sharing intimacy and start sharing the pleasure of being with him, we go, now what is it? What do you want? Oh, soul's God! (laughs) He goes, that will come, but I'm trying to enjoy you." you. I mean, do you have room for the God that wants you to be before him in love? And that's what he's after? That's what it says. He chose you before time began that you'd be holy and blameless before him in love. That's what he's after, guys. That's what he's after. We spend so much time under the burden of our our failures and our faults. Let me tell you something. If he chose you from before time began, let's think this through for a moment. He knew you from forever. And not just thinking about you every day until the day that you would be born. He knew your end from the beginning. He knew every single failure, every single shortcoming, every single propensity to sin. He knew all the brokenness and lusts of your own heart. He knew all the challenges and difficulties, every mistake you'd ever make. He knew all of that when He chose you. We're not, I mean, we're almost like, hey, I don't think you know what you're getting into. I'm really jacked up. God's like, I'm sorry, what? You think you're surprising me somehow? Do you understand I've been staring at you from infinity? Beloved, this is the purpose in the heart of the Father. This is the motivation of his desire. It's love. And from that place, he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. I'll just tell you something. You might be an adopted kid in here tonight. Let me tell you something. I don't know what your experience was in being adopted, but you always have something over the natural kids. You know what it was? You got chosen. Natural kids, parents just got what they got. I'm like, dang. Adopted kids, you got picked. You got chosen. You got selected not that one that one i want you and that's the father's heart towards you selected adopted chosen to be adopted and we have the spirit of the lord in our hearts by which we cry out abba abba This is who God wants to be with us. Our problem is we want to stay at a distance because of shame. And God never wanted shame to be in the way. That's why he sent his son. That's why the power of the blood of Jesus is far grander than we've ever dreamt. The blood of Jesus, it not only forgives us, it not only cleanses us, it justifies us so we can sit before him completely innocent. Beloved, that truth is so towering, I can't even do it justice, that when God looks at you, He doesn't see all the mess. He sees the beauty of holiness imparted to you by the blood of Jesus. He sees you innocent. He chose you to adopt you. Why? According to the good pleasure of His will. It's what would please Him. You are what pleases him. See, the father wanted a family, so he actualized the entire story that would send his own son to be the sacrifice for human sin. Why? So that in Jesus, we could all become adopted sons and daughters of God. Amen. Verse six, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What are we even talking about right now? This whole thing is grace. One of the greatest... Oh, man, it's, it's 6.45. Glory to God. What, we go to about 8.30 around here, right? Okay. One of the greatest apologetics about the truth of Christianity is the concept of grace. Just think about it for a minute. Virtually every religion has a great God, and it has a, a people... And the story of virtually every religion is how did those people get to God? And they spend their entire life doing all sorts of rituals and rites and and all sorts of different things to try to figure out how they get to God. Christianity is the only one with the story that we have. The story wasn't about God saying, I'm great, you're not, come and try to find me. No, Christianity is, God says, I'm great, and I'm love. And though you reject me, I'm going to come find you. I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to come after you. This is grace. One of the greatest apologetics of Christianity is this. What other religion has the king of the kingdom as the supreme servant in the kingdom? What other religion has the the high priest as also the sacrifice? Which which other one has the one that's the most highly exalted as the one who has lowered himself the most, all for the the one singular motivation of coming and getting us, Of, of providing a way that we could have relationship with him? See, the opposite of grace is you trying to add something to it. See, this is when you know you're in striving. This is when you know you're in religion. This this is sin, beloved, when you try to figure out what do I need to do to get God to like me? What do I need to do to get God to accept me? You got to get it. (laughs) He doesn't want perfect people. (laughs) Because there aren't any. He only wants us. He's the only perfect one. And he knew what he was getting into when he actualized humanity. He knew what he was getting into with you when he chose you before time began. He knew what the cost would be to sacrifice his son, really to sacrifice himself. He knew what the cost was to pay for you because he knew how infinite the gulf would be he knew the towering pain and shame of sin he knew the the depth of the death of rebellion and he knew what it would take for himself to be able to come and find you and he never flinched he always came for you do you know what that's called grave you can't get there on your own. You can't add anything to it. There's nothing you can do to make him like you more. You, in fact, you can't improve on your status. If you're in Christ, you can't even improve on your status because you are accepted, what it's going to say right there, in the beloved. You are accepted in and with Jesus Christ. As perfect as Jesus is to the Father, so are you when you are in him. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm preaching better than y'all are amening, but that's okay. Woo! Accepted. You know what most Christians do? They work their entire life to try to get into a room that they're already in. Try to figure out, how can I get God to accept me? How do I get God to like me? How do I get him to love me? No! He already likes you and loves you. You're accepted in the Beloved. You're accepted in the Beloved. Man, you know what? My confidence, it has nothing to do with me, my ability, my my strategic leadership stuff, my, my preaching gift. It has nothing to do with any of that mess. You know why? Because without Him, I'm nothing. My confidence is completely in this, that God likes me. He likes me. He goes, oh yeah. If you only even knew a fraction, how much I like you we worry about so many things and up in the father's heart he's saying I have loved you with an everlasting love I've sought you and I've made every possible situation work so I could have you I've come after you Oh, we've got about 10 minutes to do the last <laughs> two Roman numerals flip on over I can't do this stuff justice, guys. I can't can't even come close. The the truths that are here are so rich and so valuable. Let's read this. Verse 7 through 12. In him, now we're going to shift the focus. The focus is now Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That's what we've just been talking about. We've got the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. I've expounded a bit on the redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace. I want to dial in on this verse. Eight which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. In this, I mean, incredibly packed, you know, series of verses, you could easily overlook verse 8, but verse 8 is too powerful to skip. First of all, it says, made to abound toward us. That just means he lavished his grace on us. He lavished his grace on us. But these two phrases, these two words, in wisdom... And in prudence. Wisdom, and another way to say prudence is in in insight. With insight. What's it talking about? It's saying this. That the only one who could have come up with a plan so shocking and so amazing and so wise is God. That's how I know what the false religions are. Every false religion has humans trying to get to God. But the wisdom that's expounded in the cross, which God says the cross is foolishness to men, but it's the height of the wisdom of God. God says, fine, reject me. Hate me. He goes, kill me. And in you killing me, I will pay for you. Who can come up with this? No human came up with it because God came up with it. He goes, when you rage against me, and you rage against me and you hate me and you, you turn to destroy me and you, you get Luciferian impulses to, to destroy me, he goes, it will be in that that I overcome you. He destroyed the devil through the cross And he purchased humanity through the cross. Oh, the the heights, the depths of the wisdom of God. The cross is the height of his wisdom. That he who is towering in omnipotence would go so low to purchase us and to destroy the enemy all at once. And who has the insight to then effectively work out the plan of salvation? Who has the prudence to actually be able to move the pieces to make this thing actually happen? And let's not just consider the cross as the only thing that he has the insight and the wisdom to make happen, but let's consider the progress of the gospel. Who can understand even what it means that God will say this, when they say yes to me, I'll put my spirit on the inside of them. I will cause them to have a brand new heart and a brand new nature. And then I will fill them with my power by the Holy Spirit so that this, when they preach the word, when they tell the story of the redemption, power will be on it so that when people hear that story, they will be cut to the heart and then they too will say yes to my sacrifice and my offer of salvation the insight to make it all work. Who thinks like that, beloved? I mean, if it were you and I, let's just be honest. If you and me were God, which is a very bad idea, but if you and me were God, we would show up. I mean, this is how I would do it. I won't speak for you. I would show up as a 10,000 foot God. My voice would be able to be heard all over the globe. I'd say, hello! And everybody, like, dear God. I go, that's right. And I'd say, bow down or bear my wrath. And I would have 100% salvation across the planet. <laughs> Done. He goes, yeah, that's why you're not God. Bad plan. He goes, I will come. And I will love you and I will express my nature to you, which is meekness and lowliness and humility and tenderness and kindness and care and nurture. And I will come to you. I will make a way to reach you when you could have never reached me. It's wisdom to do it this way, son. He goes, and I've got insight. I don't want to just do the story to you. I want you to partner with me. I'm going to put my power on you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to put my words in your mouth that when you speak them, I'll put power on that and men's hearts will be convicted and they'll be converted. I think about the progress of the gospel being put in the hands of people and I go, God, wouldn't it have been better had you done it yourself? He goes, no. It's wisdom and insight that the subjects of the kingdom partner with me in the progress of the kingdom. Oh, glory to God, beloved, in all wisdom and prudence. Come on. Having made known to us the mystery of the Father's will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Oh, that phrase, purposed in himself, I got to say it. Purposed in himself, it means this, that when God wanted a creative impulse, he didn't look at anything else. He looked on the inside of himself. And that's why the plan of salvation is an expression of his nature. It's all his love. It's all his mercy. It's all his tenderness. It's all his kindness. That's why salvation in itself is so laden with grace because that's who he is. He looked at himself. He didn't look outside for some creative impulse. He looked within himself. He purposed in himself. And he came up with the plan. And furthermore, he goes on and says this, that he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, the Father might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Jesus. What does that mean? That means this, that at the right time, God is gonna gather together the heavens and the earth together and put them under one leader, the Lord Jesus. Now here's what's beautiful about this. There is not... Another human who could lead the planet and stay humble. There's not one. There's not one that could lead the planet and be holy and be tender and be kind and be loving. There's not one except for Jesus. Because he's the express image of the Father's glory. All that the Father is, so is the Son. And the Son will be given the worship and the praise of the nations. And he will do it in perfect humility, in perfect tenderness, and in perfect kindness. He will lead the the nations in perfect wisdom. Beloved, heaven and earth are coming together again. And Jesus Christ who has all authority in heaven and earth, will rule and reign heaven and earth together. Ready? As a man. Oh my gosh. God says, I'm going to deliver all of this to a human being. And the wisdom of God in that. That the Son of God, as a man, will rule and reign forever and ever. Oh, glory to God. In the first section, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then it says that we should be to the praise of his glory in this second section. And then in the third section, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Beloved, this whole thing, by the end of this whole thing, when the Lord Jesus has returned, when all the nations have come under his leadership, when Jesus is ruling and reigning in perfection with love and humility and holiness, we will all look at this whole story and we'll say, "Glory to God, to the praise of the glory of His grace." See, when you've run your race and you make it, and you and I are there, and the Father is doling out rewards, we are going to be dumbfounded at the wonder of God, that he would reward us because it will be so clear to every single person that none of this happens without his grace. I like to say it this way. There'll be one trophy in the trophy case of heaven. Grace. Grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Last verses, verse 13. In him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Did you know you have a seal on you right now? Did you know when heaven sees you, it sees a seal on you, the Holy Spirit? And it goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. What does that mean? It means this. That if you ever wondered, man, is this whole story really going to ever come to pass? You don't have to look any further than right there. And the work of the Holy Spirit in your own heart. I, was, uh, I had the pleasure over the holidays, uh, we had one of our family members got born again. It was just glorious. Yeah, yeah. And so... We went and visited him, and he, he and his wife, now, now she wasn't saved, and he is saved, and they were, they were really just trying to get down this path of Christianity, like, what do we do now? So we went and spent a couple days with them, and, and just prayed with them, just shared with them for like two full days, just shared the, the, the gospel and the Bible, and just all sorts of stuff to read and look at, and it was just a great time of fellowship, and it was just one of those deals. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but, you know, I hadn't seen him for about six months, and when I saw him before, he wasn't saved. But when I saw him again, this guy's like real saved. Like for real, born again. Like, dang. He goes, I'm just so hungry for the word. I'm just hungry. I just, I just want to read. He goes, I've been reading the Bible too much. i got to talk to my kids some more. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, this guy's real, real, real born again. He goes, all I really want to do is pray and read my Bible. He just texted me the other day. He goes, how do you guys do this fasting thing? I want to try that out. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like he really got saved. He wasn't like that before at all. Well, here's what happened. So we're praying before we leave. So we've been talking with him for two days and he and his wife, and she's so sweet. She just comes out of a different background. She used to be a Mormon. She's just real confused. Glory. Anyway, and so uh, we're praying there at the end. We take like 10 minutes and just pray for him. And it was just one of those prayers where you know you just begin to pray and boom, the presence of the Lord just settles on everybody. And we're just like, yes, Lord. And so we pray and amen. And I just open my eyes and I look at them and they're both like, like they just don't move. Like the presence of the Lord's on them. And I'm like, what's happening? God said, like, I go, this is awesome. Does this always happen when you pray? I go, well, not all the time, but yeah, it kind of, kind of does. And man, this is amazing. What are we, what are we feel God. I go, yeah, that's what this is about. We get to feel Him. And, 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 uh, and so, you know, we, we said our goodbyes. Well, about. About a week later, she reaches out to us by text. She says, I've got to just let you guys know that when you guys prayed and we felt God on us like that, I just asked Jesus to save me. She goes, I'm saved now. I'm saved. She goes, but I got to tell you what's happened with me since then. She goes, ever since that day, fears, the anxieties that I had on my soul, they just lifted off me. She goes, it's light. It's like light in my soul. She goes, and I'm hopeful. For the first time in years, I'm hopeful, and I am expecting that God is going to do awesome stuff with me. She goes, it's amazing, and I just want to read the Bible, and I'm just in love with God, and she's texting all this stuff. My wife's reading it to me. I'm like, dang, she got saved. What is that? The Holy Spirit came on the inside of her. And her spirit that was dead is now alive. She got the guarantee of the full inheritance. She got the guarantee of our redemption. And do you get it? That this thing doesn't end at the cross? Oh, we will celebrate the cross for infinity. But the cross is the doorway. See, the Father said that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign. And when the Lord returns, there's something which he talks about here, the redemption of the purchased possession. Do you know what the purchased possession is? Me and you. See that when the Lord returns, he actually gets to finalize our redemption. And the Bible uses this term, it's called the glorification. Do you know what the glorification is? It's when all those dreams that you've had about flying finally come to pass. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first and that we who are alive and remain will be caught up and we will meet him in the air. It says that this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. It says this, and I don't even get this. It says, when we see him, we will be like him. Ooh. Every pore and fiber of our being will be filled with fire and majesty and glory. Oh, something's going to happen to us. This is where it's going, beloved. Beloved. The redemption of the purchased possession. Have me, Jesus. Take me, Jesus. Whatever you want to do. And beloved, from there on, it just gets better and better and better to the praise of His glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's just give the Lord a hand clap of praise. We bless you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a father to us. Let's all stand. Oh, man. Oh, I love the Bible. Come on. Next week, see, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it sets the table. And man, it says all these things are going to be summed up in Christ. You know what next week is? Spirit of Revelation because we got to get to know him. And that's what next week is. Oh, man, it's going to be good. Oh, come on. Let's just pray. Lord, here we are. We love you so much. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word, it brings light. The entrance of your word, it brings light. And so, Lord, even right now, where there's been darkness on our soul in and, and so many areas, whether it be in the truths of the redemption, the truths of our adoption, the truths of our chosenness, of your delight in us, or whether we've lived under shame, not understanding your motives in our life, our love. Lord, set us free again to love you freely. Remove condemnation. But we turn away from sin and we turn towards you. We want all that you have for us, God. We want to walk in this newness of life. We want to walk in what it means to be born again. And just bear with me just for a minute as we're praying. I just want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you'd say, you know what? I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never been born again. I've never had the Holy Spirit come on the inside. And make my dead spirit alive again. I don't know the truths of the adoption like you're talking. But I want to. I want to know his love. Or maybe you'd say, I've been away from God. I've been going my own way. Maybe maybe sometime before in your life you gave your life to the Lord and then you turned away from him. Oh man, don't hear a message like this tonight. And then just act like everything's okay. No, no, no. Turn away from how you've been living. And turn back to Jesus. Allow him to cleanse you, to renew you, to set you right again.